I like to see my audiences when I talk, but on the radio, I'm accustomed to being interviewed, so I think I'll interview myself. Question. Ms. Kaufman, will you be speaking as a writer or as a teacher, or is there a connection? Answer. I'd like to quote one of my favorite lines from Shalom Aleichem, and I think one of the funniest. I quote, A man may be likened to a carpenter. A man lives and lives and lives, and then he dies. So does a carpenter. By the same token, a teacher may be likened to a writer, and for the same reason. Question. Ms. Kaufman, I hope you don't mind my mentioning it, but I detect a slight foreign accent in your speech. Were you born in this country? No. As a matter of fact, I came when I was 12, and I learned English then. I spent my youth flunking the orals for my license to teach English in New York City high schools. Each year, they would send me a letter, Dear Sir or Madam, failed for foreign melody in your speech. That's a euphemism for accent. I took numerous speech courses and finally passed. Um, I think I passed, not because my speech had become any less precise, but because that was the year the board was concentrating on the Sibyl and S. And the sentence that was my open sesame to my profession, I still remember it, was, he still insists he sees the ghosts. Well, I said it apparently to their satisfaction, and I passed. But before I was able to get my license, I spent years and years subbing. Uh, and uh, I taught in many, many schools, which became the basis for my book. Uh, the school that I describe in Up the Down Staircase is a composite of all the schools that I have taught in. I really ran the gamut. I found myself in classes where, in order to write on the blackboard, I would develop the overhead backhand knowing the perils of turning my back to the class, where a cop would walk in when I was in the middle of doing Lady Macbeth and say, Lady, that kid I gotta have handcuffs out. But whether I was in a class of students who were apple polishers or in a class of students who were window smashers, whether we were reading Hamlet or just the balloons coming out of the heads of the comics and comic books, it seems to me that all of the students, whoever they were, were saying, were crying in their own private wilderness the same thing. Here I am, care about me, pay attention. And this is the one thing that's so difficult to do in large, depersonalized school systems. And so I try to proselytize, and if you have to proselytize, you do it through humor, I think. I try to puncture some of the pomposities, uh, some of the absurdities that exist in all large bureaucracies, I suppose. Uh, the lack of communication, the language such as pedagogies, uh, language full of mists and vapors that sidesteps issues and befuddles meaning. For example, latent leader. That means a delinquent. High underachiever. I don't know what that means. Or a slow non-reader. How does he differ from a fast non-reader? How fast does a fast non-reader read? And then all the absurdities that emanate from the giant maws of the mimeograph machines in the schools of our country. Please excuse the student for being late. He had to stay in the late room to make up his lateness. Or teachers must not punch each other out. Or all the directives about bells. Disregard bells. 
disregard previous notice about bells. Bells will ring at 305 sharp. This, however, is uncertain. Or detained by me for going up the down staircase on subsequent insolence. This, of course, is the genesis of my title, Working Against the Grain, Going Against the Tide. I had to fight for this title. Many people suggested titles that I'm almost ashamed to repeat. Oh, I will repeat one of them. Don't shoot till you see the pupil. I'm glad I had the willpower to resist that. And I find the title has gone through many changes in various translations into other languages. One that amuses me especially and that has given my book a whole new dimension is Upside Down on a Staircase. And then I poke fun too at some of the euphemisms, uh, part of the befuddling pedigrees. Euphemisms, for example, for dull children, non-academic-minded, sub-paced, non-linguistic. I've been getting corroborative material from teachers throughout the country, sending me their own absurd mimeographs from their own administration. One of them said, no student is to be given a pass without a medical certificate to cover the condition. <laughs> then there was another one that said, all up staircases will be marked down, all down staircases will be marked up, and all staircases leading to the basement will be down only. Perhaps some of my listeners are laughing. If so, that's good. Let me quote from Sholem Aleichem again. Laughter is good for you, he said. Even if you don't see the joke, you may as well laugh. Laugh on credit. You may see the joke later. And if you don't, you're that much to the good. And I think you're aware of the fact that I'm dead serious, that beneath the laughter, I feel passionate about some of the things that I've said in the book. And of course, that often we laugh, lest we should weep. Question, Miss Kaufman, would you point your finger to the villain then in your book or in the school system? No, I don't think there is really any villain unless it's our whole capsule culture, intravenous information, instant insights, pocket philosophy, where children are like captive sponges, absorbing whatever information is fed to them and then squeezing it out at exam time in exactly the same form. Perhaps I'm really against the whole depersonalized, computerized culture we live in. I remember writing a letter, writing many letters to Bloomingdale's, for example, about a bill that um, I was being done for, which wasn't really mine. And the letters went into some kind of computer, I suppose. I kept getting more and more threatening letters from them until finally I wrote on the envelope, Attention, human being, not a computer. And I addressed myself to whatever human eyes might be reading my letter. Well, you know, three days after that, I received a phone call. The voice said, Miss Kaufman? Yes. <laughs> this is a human being. Oh, it was so good to hear from a human being. Of course, I remember Arthur Miller's line in Death of a Salesman. Attention must be paid. It's a human being. And certainly attention must be paid. It was never easy to be young, of course. I think it's probably harder than ever now. We've had wars, destruction, famine, earthquake, holocausts in the past, but never, I think never, 
in the history of man has a whole generation grown up in the shadow of that giant mushroom. I find all our boundaries are getting very fuzzy between good and bad, right and wrong, shifting mores, the lack of a hero either to imitate or rebel against. This is a sort of culture of a non-hero doing his non-deed on a giant stage of the absurd, a stage, moreover, with no exit, and so many social, economic, political, psychological factors, pill, draft, Vietnam, drugs, breakdown of authority, poverty in an age of prosperity, racism, cities ungluing at the seams, and especially, I think, the discrepancy, the awful discrepancy between potential and achievement, between the path to the moon and the corner slum. And the young shall inherit the earth. Indeed, they have already. Half of our population is 25 or younger. And they're still crying care, care about me. And they're still trying in their own inarticulate, articulate way, just, I think, as the children in my book did, to say things much more meaningful than the gobbledygook of the adults around them. I invented something I called a suggestion box in my book. I don't know any teacher intrepid enough to have one, but I wanted to make the children speak with their own authentic voices about some of the things that were troubling them. And they speak about teachers. You gave me the courage to read. You made me feel I'm real. And perhaps the greatest accolade of all, you're the only English teacher that learned me English real good. And they talk about integration, about which volumes and paper miles of words have been written. But who can say it more succinctly than a child who says, personally, I got integrated with all the kids in my class by swapping homework. It's signed, failing. Or another who says, they can't shuffle us around like so many colored marbles. Or another who says, when Shakespeare wrote, the fault, dear Brutus, lies in our stars. No, lies not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. He wasn't a colored person. Or another who says, can you tell by my handwriting if I'm white or not? And yet, I think we must not flunk the teacher. I think there are many unsung heroes and heroines working their magic behind the closed doors of our schools. Business is going on as usual during alterations. And there are alterations. You know, This is a time of very swift changes. Yesterday is already obsolete. And last night's headlines are this morning obituaries. But if there's one thing that I, I, I think is enormously important, it is to bring back some of the magic, some of the, oh, what a corny word that has become, inspiration into teaching. I met a young man recently who had been a patient of my father's. My father was a physician. Some years ago, when my father was uh, still not um, had still not mastered English, and this young man told me that my when my father would stethoscope him, he would say, "Inspire, expire, inspire, expire." Well, perhaps these are the only two alternatives left to us: to inspire, or to expire. And perhaps we, the over thirty people have built it better than we knew. We have given the young 
people of today the courage to question, the freedom to act. Now, Ms. Kaufman, let's go back to your book. What made you write it? Answer, guilt. Question, did you say guilt? Answer, yes, guilt too can move mountains. I had first published a short piece in the Saturday Review that was called From a Teacher's Wastebasket. It was a series of scraps of presumably unrelated papers that uh, were supposedly found in a waste paper basket of a large metropolitan high school. And their juxtaposition told a story, funny and sad, of what goes on. The day the Saturday Review hit the newsstands, my enterprising editor at Prentice Hall called my agent and said, we think there's a book in this. We'd like to meet the author. Well, we met. And they asked me to expand it into a book. And I said, no, 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 I can't possibly. First of all, I'm a short story writer. I've never done a novel. And secondly, I've said everything I wanted to in this one short piece. But they gave me a substantial advance, which I needed and which I spent. <laughs> so I had to write the book. Uh, question. Did you know it would be a bestseller? Answer. No, of course not, actually. I was afraid I'd be fired from the college where I was teaching, the Borough of Manhattan Community College, because I'd stepped on so many administrative toes. But a colleague of mine assured me. She said, oh, when the book comes out, no one will read it. Nobody will review it. Don't worry. Question, was it easy to write? It seemed so effortless. Answer, well, I'm glad the sweat doesn't show. I had a problem of the uh, strange style that I use. I was so afraid the book might become merely clever. And style, uh, like a lady's slip, should be there, but should not show. It was a sort of tightrope I was walking. Uh, how do I, without speaking as an author, using the system of collages, of scraps of paper, mimeographs, children's compositions, jottings on the blackboard, uh, yearbook, letters, uh, how can I present character in depth or uh, propel the dynamics of action. Well, apparently it, it did work, and I am very, very glad. I uh, had no idea, of course, that anyone but a few school teachers would read it, and what happened with the book has been most gratifying. Uh, I think uh, I went through several stages that might be interesting to those who write or who who well, to those who don't write and would like to know how those who write do write. One, I fought writing. I fought it tooth and nail. I circled around that typewriter like a hyena, unable to sit down. I did a hundred and one things that were the equivalent of sharpening pencils, and then I forced myself to sit and write. Then about a third of the way through the book, something extraordinary happened. I've read about it happening to others, but it had never happened to me, the characters whom I had invented, whom I had manipula manipulated up to this point, uh, ignited, and they assumed a life of their own. And uh, then all I had to do was listen to them, and I knew that I couldn't make a mistake. And then I was totally involved. I would work from morning until the windows got dark. When I handed my book to the editor, I had no idea whether it was good or bad. And when the galleys came back to me, it could have been anything, a pizza pie or a bundle of laundry. Uh, it had nothing to do with me. And then the panic set in. It's no good. It's awful. I must recall it. 
and then the physical book itself, the uh, the book in store windows, uh, the book held in people's hands and the buses. It was almost as if they were touching my skin. And there was al also a, a sense of slight shame, a kind of public exposure. Each gigantic comma, each inexact word loomed. And then the reviews came, the glorious reviews. And then I realized why, yes, I did communicate how intelligent are the critics of our nation. And then the fan mail, how intelligent are the readers of our nation. And the letters from the children especially, which I treasure. And then the book assumed a life of its own. It went on to become a movie, a paperback, a part of our language. Uh, when I was in the Soviet Union, uh, it appeared as a, a cartoon with the up the down staircase translated into Russian under it, and a required reading in many colleges and universities. The next stage is a total divorce from the book. What up the down the up the down staircase? I can't even say the title anymore. Who, me? I wrote it. Oh, yes, a dim recollection of some book some time ago. And then there's an interesting aftermath, uh, success syndrome and all its dangers. I think in this country especially, where we have the cult of stardom or of uh, the sale of personality, the magic of success, truly magic, because we think it rubs off. All the poets in, resident, uh, in residence in universities, for example, the celebrity guests and TV shows. And the dangers are that we can take all that seriously or lose our sense of humor, which is really perspective, and begin to pontificate as experts in a culture that creates and deifies experts, and even doubt our talent through too much adulation or money. We become vested interest, property to those who feed off success. It's as though we have laid a golden egg and people keep following us with, with a basket in the hope that we will lay other golden eggs and we get away from our own sources. And the danger, the greatest of all, is of spiritual fatness and the expectation that we will repeat it. Now, why should one repeat anything? Why not experiment, deviate, go off on vagrant, unexplored paths of one's own, just as one did the first time? But this is the problem, especially here, I think. If one has done a successful play or book, the cry is, make it the same, only bigger. Make it exactly like the first, only better. It's like the joke about the shaggy dog. Yes, that is my dog, only my dog is shaggier. As if quantity were better than quality. If one canter is good, twin canters are better. 25 naked girls are better than one. Question, I understand your book was translated into many languages. Answer, yes, including Finnish, Hebrew, Japanese, Russian. Question, have you revisited Russia? Answer, I'm glad you asked me that. I mentioned that I was there in the spring of 1968. Uh, it was an extraordinary experience because I went on many levels. I wish I had time to talk about that, but probably, or perhaps another time. Uh, did you have any problems in communicating with the Russians since you speak Russian? Answer, no, only when the Russians insisted on <laughs> in speaking English, as one gentleman did by telling me that, I'll try to quote him, I speak good English is because I spent my younghood in your country, where I was shortly imprisoned on Elias Island as external student. Ms. Kaufman, regretfully, I think our time is at an end. Answer, well, 
That always makes me think of a composition I once asked children to write. I asked them to write a hundred words. One child wrote two faltering sentences, and at the end he wrote, 53 words so far, need 47 more. I don't think I need 47 more. I think we have communicated with each other, you and I. Question, Miss Kaufman, do you have any last words of wisdom or any message to give our listeners? Answer, I'd like to quote once more from Shalom Aleichem. Quote, that's life, but don't worry. <laughs>